So Exodus chapter 20, we're going to begin in verse 1. And a portion of this is what we've read already a couple weeks ago. And uh, this is what the Word of God says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So I'm going to be honest with you. I already told you how I had that little exchange with the Lord this morning on the way into the service. The process of writing this message was really difficult for me. And, and it was difficult for me for one predominant reason. And it may not seem like a big deal to you, but it was for me. And I kind of wrestled with it. I didn't know how to clearly distinguish for you between the first commandment and the second commandment. The first commandment, of course, being you shall have no other gods before me. And the second, which we just read, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Because it almost seems like that's the same thing. Like if God says don't have any gods before me and, and, and don't bow before other gods, it's almost feel, felt to me like he was saying the same thing. So when I preached to you, First, a couple weeks ago about that first commandment, I talked to you about the danger of having other gods by, uh, you know, serving internal idols. And when I said internal idols, I was thinking primarily of things like our attitudes, our desires, our habits, etc. And it seemed clear to me that even in 2019, these can be these things can easily become objects of our misplaced reverence. But now we come to the second commandment, and if doubt about the first the second clearly forbids the worship of idols and images and it focuses on them and it even defines them for us it called it, it said this it said that, the, that these idols are a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth so to the best of my understanding one of at least three things must be true that's convoluted for me the distinction between the first and second commandments. Here's what they are. So first, maybe, brace yourself, maybe I just did a lousy job of preaching the first message. That's always a real possibility. I mean, let's be honest. Maybe I didn't know what the first commandment was all about, and, and maybe I won't know what the second refers to either. I guess time will tell, right? Maybe, secondly, there's another option. Maybe they're not two commandments at all. Maybe they're just one commandment. Maybe what we call the second commandment is only a commentary on or an expansion of the first commandment. But this is probably highly unlikely since Jews and Christians have considered these the Ten Commandments for millennia. So if you remove the second commandment, you're not going to have any longer Ten Commandments. See, I can do math. And then there's a third option, and it's this. Perhaps there is something deeper for us to discover. It helps us to better understand the nature of each commandment on its own. And that's the assumption that we're going to be working with, and let's see what we find. The first thing that I want to propose to you is that the first commandment applies 
to the outer reaches of our universal tendency towards worship. What do I mean by that? Universal tendency towards worship. It's this, that we are all saved, unsaved, lost, found, blind, seeing. We are all worshipers. Every single one of us that's ever been born, that ever walks the earth, we are all worshipers. This is, for me, the easiest theological truth to prove absolutely conclusively. Everyone worships someone or something everywhere and at all times. While some people, thankfully, worship the one true God, yet others worship themselves by the pursuit of things like money and beauty and power and fame and success and a host of other things. But in truth, all of these things and many, many more are constantly demanding worship from us. The choices that you're constantly being called on to make are not a choice between one thing or another. They're the, they're the choice of where your allegiance, where your worship is really going to lie. Have you ever thought about that? You're constantly being seduced in one way or another to bow your knee in worship by pursuing something that is less than God. i got good news for you, though. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. Do you remember that Jesus was tempted by the devil? When the devil tempted him, he cut right to the chase on this very point. Remember Matthew 4, 8? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him... All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So Jesus has promised that he would be given everything he needed to be satisfied and to be sustained simply by redirecting his worship and thereby violating the first commandment. And notice, don't lose this fact, notice where that offer came from. Every day, you and I are going to hear voices that make promises of what you will receive for the seemingly low cost of your redirected worship. From advertising, from social media, from the demands of culture, from the expectations of others. But do not, do not be deceived. The cost of redirecting your worship is unspeakably high. Both in this life and in the one to come, misplaced worship will cost you eventually everything that's of value. Everything. You'll lose it all. But Jesus demonstrated for us the position that all believers have to take when he said this, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So you could say, follow me here, that the first commandment applies to our passive worship. And what do I mean by that? Passive worship means how we all have this tendency to give in to the temptation, to find satisfaction in anything else but God. We're, we're told in that first commandment that we shall have no other gods before him. And, and listen to me, that has nothing to do with God's ego. God is not insecure, so he demands your worship. God demands your worship primarily because he's worthy of it. Primarily because he's worthy of it. But that's not all. He demands your worship because he loves you and he desires your protection. He wants the very best for you. And guess what? He is the very best for you. When you think about it, all sin, little sins, big sins, I don't really believe in those distinctions, but for the sake of this argument, all sin begins with misplaced worship. We were created, all of you, every single one of you, without exception, were created for the express purpose of bringing glory to God. Every one of us. 
So when we bring glory to other things or other people or when we center our uh, when we center our own glory in other things, we're rejecting our created purpose. We say this is what the designer, the creator, the architect created me for, but I'm going to I'm going to use it all for something else. We're rejecting our created purpose, uh, our created purpose and we're committing an absolutely heinous sin against our creator. James 1.14 really lays this out for us. It says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Listen, what James is saying that temptation is always focused on, is always rooted in your own desires. I've never been tempted to eat mud or punch myself in the face. Never been tempted. Why? Because I don't desire those things. The things that I'm tempted by are rooted in my own desires. I'm going to set some of you free here this morning. The devil didn't make you do it. You wanted to do it. It was rooted in your own desires. That, but that desire, if we as believers allow it to be conceived, it is guaranteed to produce sin. That means if I, if I have this desire and it's a, it's a desire that, that robs glory from God and I, and I play with it and I kind of, I kind of mold it and shape it and ponder it, then it's guaranteed to produce sin. And that sin is guaranteed to result in death, is what James said. But as the first commandment applies to our passive worship, and here's the distinction. The second commandment seems to me to apply to our active worship. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the words of the, of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Making for yourself is an intentional act. While the first commandment speaks of who we worship, that our worship is to be given to God exclusively, the second commandment speaks of how we worship, and it helps to define the parameters of our worship. We said earlier, and two weeks ago especially, that idols can be formed for the benefit of our latent desires, and we result, and they result in misplaced worship, that process to you and I can seem very subtle because, as you know, we are all sinners by default, so we don't always recognize without the light from the Scriptures and the help of the Holy Spirit when an idol has been erected. Anybody ever been surprised by an idol in your life? You go, whoa, how did that get there? And you can trace it back. Desire, sin, death. But the second commandment is violated when we consciously, actively designate something tangible for our object of worship. It happens when we look at something or someone and we either say, that is my God, or when we treat it like our God. And it doesn't matter if we deny with our words that that's what it is. What matters is our heart. In other words, it, you know, like I said, it, it doesn't matter what we say about a thing or a person or an ambition or whatever. The place it holds in our hearts, however, is absolutely critical. This is a conscious decision, not a subconscious one. You have chosen to treat the substitute thing or person or attitude or whatever as God. So how do we know what we're treating like God? You think, well, this is pretty harsh, Mark. How, how can you know that I'm treating something like God? Let me help you with a little litmus test here. We know what we're treating like God when we realize, A, what God alone deserves, and B, what God alone can give. God alone, first thing you need to know, God alone deserves glory. 
Glad to have some agreement on that fact. God alone deserves glory. In fact, in the scriptures, he says, I will not share my glory with another. So the question I have for you this morning is, upon what or whom do you lavish glory in your life? Is it a romantic relationship? Is it a a car or a house or other possession? Is it some athletic or musical talent that you have? Is it some uh, intellectual achievement that you have uh, attained? Is it some sports team or some band or some movie franchise? Or maybe it's your perfect children. Secondly, we have to realize that God alone can give salvation. The Bible says that there is salvation in no other No other name has been given except the name of Jesus Christ, whereby we can be saved. So my question to you is, what are you looking to for salvation? A great job? Perfect health? A stellar reputation? The praise of other people? The acquisition of power? An upcoming marriage? An impending divorce? A political party or political position? Both those living in ancient pagan cultures and today's false religions had this habit of creating carved images and painted representations to conceptualize to whom they should give glory and to whom they were looking to for salvation. For example, the ancient Egyptians had gods resembling baboons. That holds no appeal to me. Falcons, cats, crocodiles, just to name a few. The Canaanites had many gods in human form as well as some animal ones mixed in. The ancient Israelites were constantly adopting the gods of these other cultures and worshiping them. But today, Catholics beatify people like Mary and other deceased people and make images of them. And they pray to these images, which is a violation of several biblical commandments. Similarly, Mormons revere angels, created beings. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of the folly and the impotence of all such worship. I love this chapter. The whole chapter is about idols. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 3, he says, A tree from the forest. Now, I want you to pay close attention to this because Jeremiah, quite frankly, is kind of making fun of this. He says, A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk do not be afraid of them for they can cannot do evil neither is it in them to do good jeremiah like i said like i said with a mocking tone points out that these statues no matter how ornately decorated are powerless they can't move they can't speak they can't do evil or good and later in the chapter he says that these Images aren't a representation of any one true God, but rather they reflect the image of their own inventors. Here's what he says. Every man, this is so beautiful, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. There is no breath in them. They're worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. But Jeremiah isn't just simply making the point that the work of a craftsman's hands can never be a god. He also compares the one true God of Israel to these silly homemade delusions. He says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you but the Lord 
is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the earth. It is He, God, who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes mist rise from the ends of the earth. He he makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Not like these idols is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Idols are powerless, but the wrath of God can make the earth quake. The utterance of his word keeps rain falling and lightning flashing and wind blowing. He's the architect. He's the builder of everything we see. By an act of his judgment, a day is coming, I promise you this, when all the deceptions of idols will cease forever and all the craftsmen and worshipers of idols will be damned. This is reality and it's a far cry from the empty threats and the empty promises of figurines of wood and stone and clay that can't do anything. Now, I should probably quit right here because likely none of you disagree with anything I've said so far. Likely. So brace yourself. See, our problem is not that our houses are filled. I said this a couple weeks ago too. That Not that our houses are filled with stone and wooden idols. Our problem is that inherent human nature never changes. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of arrogant of us to look back on ancient pagan cultures and say, silly pagans. Because human nature does not deviate from one generation to another. We just invent, we just invent different ways to commit the same sins. Amen? So you may laugh at the thought of some rain god providing for your family. Well, you yourself place all of your hope and all of your confidence in the God of the American economy. So long as it's strong, so long as you have a job, so long as the bills are paid, you feel safe. Salvation comes in the name of the economy. You may not sacrifice some stone monkey asking it to provide health for you, but you worship the God of health clubs and protein shakes, and you think somehow you're going to sculpt the perfect body and thereby cheat death. And you don't believe that your final day has already been predetermined by God. And you aren't going to add a day from your life and nothing can take a day away from it because it's already been predetermined. You may not be chanting before the moon in some fertility rite, but you've placed all your confidence in Match.com and Tinder to help you find romantic bliss. Of course, obviously, there's thousands of other examples, some of them even stronger that I could give. And I'm certainly not suggesting, don't misunderstand me, don't go out and say I said something that I didn't. I'm not saying that it's wrong to invest wisely or take care of your body or to experience the love of Mr. or Miss Wright. The issue is here. The issue is one of where are you placing your confidence? The issue is one of what do you trust? The issue is one of where do you and I really place our faith? Someone once asked me why I didn't think that we saw miraculous healings on the scale of Jesus' earthly ministry or that of the apostles in the book of Acts anymore. wasn't a hard question for me. I responded that I thought it was because we don't need them anymore. We don't need those kind of miracles. Why? Why would we? 
Why cry out for healing when you have health insurance? The people in the Bible who experienced miracles were generally people who were out of options. And because they were out of options, they had no choice but to place all of their hopes on Jesus. But guess what? Is it good news or bad news that you and I don't have to do that because we're financially secure, we're fully insured, and we're not persecuted? What we do have that those people didn't have is options. And those options are killing our faith. They're killing us because they're the center of our faith. That's where we put all our faith. So it's not hard to see how even the best things, investing and being healthy and all that stuff, it's not hard to see how even the best of things can become idols, little gods that we look to to save us. And because we think they can save us, we're too willing, way too willing to give them a way too prominent place in our lives, to glorify them. So if all this is true and we've drifted away from the one and only God and worshipped other things, calling them our gods, what should true worship for a believer look like? Jesus was once talking, you're probably familiar with the story, was once talking with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and the question of how to rightly worship God came up. The Samaritans did it differently than the Jews, so she asked Jesus, are they right, or are are you guys right, or are we right? And Jesus answered in this stunning way. He said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Because God is spirit, we worship him in spirit. And to say that he's spirit means that he is unseen and therefore imperceptible to the human senses. We should not call anything that we see God because we have such a limited idea, such limited data about the vastness, the awesomeness, the majesty of God. So little data that anything we could imagine or anything that we assign the high honor of calling or treating like God would be pitifully inaccurate and insufficient. Pitifully. Whatever you imagine God to be like, I don't care if you've been saved 50 years, whatever you imagine God to be like is woefully insufficient. You have no idea. Someday you will see him in a resurrected body. And if, I don't mind, if you don't mind me telling you, it's going to blow your mind. You are going to go, whoa, you are not as I imagined. See, this is true. This idea of trying to imagine God is, it's true of carved pagan figures that are called gods, but it's equally true of the modern American gods of security and political power. Those are those things that make us feel so good and so safe. They're such woefully, you know, just inept representations of anything that deserves glory or that, that we think can save us. They don't really matter nearly as much as you think they do. They don't really matter or have as much power as you might think they do. This means that we don't need anything to symbolize God. We don't need a special place to worship Him. We can worship Him anywhere. We aren't ever allowed to either overtly or covertly call anything God besides the one true God of the Bible. But we're also told Not just that we worship God in spirit, but that we worship God in truth. And this means that we worship God as he has revealed himself and not as we imagine him to be. Often I'll hear people say this phrase. To me, God is like, let me tell you something. 
Who cares what God is to you? Who cares what God is to me for that matter? Because see, I don't care what God is to you. I don't care what God is to me. I want to know God as he really is. I want to know God in truth. I can't worship him in truth if I'm living in the delusion of some cotton candy God that makes me feel all warm warm and fluttery all the time. I want to know him as he truly is. I often think of the scripture in Psalm 50, 21, where he says, You thought that I was one like yourself. And his response is, But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. It is a high, high, treasonous thing to imagine God as weak, frail, broken, and faltering as you are. He is so much bigger, so much grander, so much glorious, so much more glorious, so much worthy of praise. If you really need an image of God, as he really is, so that you can worship him in spirit and truth, I've got good news for you. There is only one image that has been provided for you. It's not in a yard filled with statuary. It's not standing high above Rio de Janeiro with his arms spread out. There's only one image that has been provided for you. You don't have to carve one out for yourself with a hammer and chisel. You don't have to work real hard and imagine what God is like. got good news for you. You can know what God is like. Colossians 1.15 says, He, referring to Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, Jesus is not a flawed, graven image birthed out of the polluted mind of some sinful silversmith. He is the exact image of God, straight from the royal courts of heaven. Hebrews 1.3 echoes the same sentiment. He says he's the radiance. Jesus, again, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you don't need a statue. You don't need a great imagination. You have been given the image of God, the exact imprint, not a flawed facsimile of his nature in Jesus Christ who took on flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to know what the power of God is like, look no further than Jesus. Sickness, disease, demons, even death, all the forces of nature are obedient to his every word. If you want to know what the wisdom of God is like, look no further than Jesus. He teaches the simple-minded. He confounds the wisdom of the wisest among us. If you want to know what the love of God is, Looks like, come on, just look no further than Jesus. Look at him up there hanging on a cross, innocent, dying for ungrateful sinners. Look at him and and see how his blood flows down and washes away all the sin of every single one of us who would dare place their trust in him. Herein is the love of God on vivid display. I don't need to imagine it. I can see it right there in the person of Jesus. There's no need for icons or images, for statues or frescoes or imaginations or inventions. We purify our worship only by beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we do this every week, every single week around here, around these communion tables. Every week, I read to you the words of Paul where he instructs the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper and he tells them that Christ instructed the church to take the bread and the wine, symbolizing Christ's broken body and his spilled blood, and and that they are to do so in remembrance of Christ. Have you ever thought about those words, in remembrance? In remembrance of Christ is not the same as 
in memoriam of Christ. Think about that. In remembrance of Christ is not the same thing as in memoriam of Christ. See, sometimes, every once in a while, people will give some money to the church as a memorial to someone who has died. Or a community will erect a a giant statue of some great civic leader or a war hero as a memorial to their service and their sacrifice. But communion shows us clearly that we don't need idols, we don't need images of either the ancient or modern variety, because we are not memorializing our fallen Savior around these tables. This is not what we are being told to remember. Wow, Jesus was great. That was awesome. Wish he was still here. We don't memorialize him because guess what? He's not dead. He is alive. And not only is he not dead, and not only is he alive, he is right now present with us in this very moment, in this very room, in the depths of my soul. He is present. So this morning, we're not remembering his death, we're remembering his presence, not from 2,000 years ago, but right here, right now, we're stirring our memory so that we can say, oh yeah, oh yeah, the Lord, the risen Lord is right here with me and all of his power is at work. Right now, we're remembering his victory over sin and the death that caused his resurrection power to course through our mortal bodies. We're not simply remembering his death. Good old Jesus. It's these truths that allow us to tear down our most beloved idols and worship the Lord, the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. To come to the table each week and and have that tangible reminder, that bread, that, that wine, that juice, and say, wow, I remember. I remember I was rescued from my sin. I remember that he's not dead. I remember that he's living in me now and changing me. And I remember that, oh yeah, someday he's going to come back and make all things new. Wow, I can hardly wait. We don't need to accept substitutes. I don't need to replace Jesus with anything. Not some ancient pagan idol or like some modern power grasping self-worshipper. I don't need to do that. I have something so much better. I have the real Lord of life living within me and speaking to me through his word every day. I want to remind, I want to invite you rather, I want to invite you to come up here and remember. I want you to have your, oh yeah, moment. Oh yeah. Feels good, you ought to say it. Oh yeah. I forgot all about that. This week I was wrestling with all kinds of trouble and heartache and heartbreak and rejection and fear and doubt and anxiety and I forgot. Oh yeah. Jesus is here. And he's enough for me. Oh, yeah. How can I forget? Good thing he gave me this way to remember him. Oh, yeah. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask our communion helpers to come. These are those familiar words that we read each week the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote to that church. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let me hear you. Oh, yeah. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and and we're going to thank God for this vivid reminder. But you might also want to just assess yourself. Paul talks about this in in the, the previous scriptures in that passage. You might want to assess yourself and say, oh my goodness, there's some idols in there. I have looked to this one for salvation. There's some words that I am needing to hear from somebody, and those those to me represent salvation. Let me tell you something. You may never hear those words, but salvation belongs to the Lord is what the Bible says. You might think, well, man, things are tight, and if I don't get this job, then I don't know what we're going to do. So my hope for salvation is in that job. Listen, you may never get that job, but God says, I will provide all your needs according to my riches and glory. are you looking to for salvation this morning? Just tear that idol down and say, oh yeah, I don't need that false hope of salvation. I have Jesus. And maybe sin and pride and insecurity are making you lavish glory on things that should not receive glory. Maybe you're in a fight with somebody and man, your opinion is so important to you and being right is so important to you that you're just lavishing glory on that opinion. This morning it's an opportunity for you to look at that and go, oh yeah, the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. Who cares about people that agree or disagree with me? It doesn't matter. Maybe you are in a relationship, maybe even a sinful relationship, and, and you are just bestowing all kinds of glory on that man, that woman, and, and, you're in, and you can't even imagine that relationship coming to an end. And you're making all kinds of compromises to keep it alive. Well, I'm telling you, that relationship might come to an end. But you can say, oh, yeah. There is one that said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, I'm a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And he's right here, right now. So come up here and remember and go, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah. That's what I remembered when I first gave my heart to him. Maybe you're here and you haven't given your heart to him. Can I invite you to? All those things that you've created to find salvation and to bestow glory on, they are going to let you down every single time. So just save yourself the trouble. Save God the trouble because God's going to tear them down someday. He said that in Jeremiah. So save God the trouble and just tear them down and put all your trust in Jesus. Put all your trust in Jesus. 
not difficult, it's not rocket science. You just say, okay, God, I've trusted in money, reputation, power, relationships, and now I'm trusting you. I'm giving you everything this morning, God. And let somebody know. Let somebody know that you're having a new start today. Let's pray and give thanks for this this remembrance of his broken body and spilled blood. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. You have done what we never could have, what all of our silly idols never could have. God, we just reject every power that lays claim to your throne right now. We cast it down. We ignore it. We mock it, Lord. And we look to you alone as the Lord of life. God, rescue us. We're taught in the, in the Lord's Prayer to pray, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us from our idols. Deliver us from our tendency to tear one down and set a new one up, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, to look to you and you alone, to worship you and you alone, to have no other gods before you. God, help us. Help us in those decisions, those deceptions that we give into subconsciously and the ones that we give into consciously, Lord. We choose you. And we say this morning, oh yeah, you're good. And we remember, we remember that you're good. So help us to come now with worshiping hearts, Lord God, thankful for your broken body, your spilled blood that makes us brand new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.